Please open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. We will be picking back up where we left off last week for those who have been following along with us. But even if you're here for the very first time, we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just blessed that you're here with us uh, to be able to, 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 to study the word of God together as a, a, as a church family. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. The title is called The Last Separation. If you've been following along in Revelation chapter 14 in the first five verses, we studied and we looked at the last redemption. Then in verses 6 through 13 last week, we looked and saw the last proclamation, the last opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. Today we will see the future glimpse of the last separation, the most solemn harvest of them all. We will see the grain harvest in the first part of the verses 14 through 16, but then we will see the grape harvest at the last portion of 17 through 20. And as we look at this and see this last separation in our verses today, today we will be remembering We must remember, you and I must remember that our Lord Jesus spoke about the harvest. And he declared that it is the end of the age. The time when the wicked are being, are going to be separated from God in all his presence of trying to get their their attention in this world. Will come to an end and the harvest will happen and they will be cast into the lake of fire. When he is going to gather the wheat into his harvest, but burn up the chaff in the fire that is unquenchable that we see in the scripture. This is what we have here in verses 14 through 16, a very discriminating judgment here. The earth is reaping, is going to be reaped by, by the Lord and by his angels who will assist him. And everything that is of God, the Son of Man, will claim for himself and the last and the last separation that will take place. And it will be so contrary to what many people even would think. Many people today think that everyone's going to heaven, everyone's going to be with God, and it doesn't matter how you lived your life, and if you rejected the things of God, you're still going to be in a happy, good place. But that's just a lie from the pit of hell. Apart from Christ, you'll be separated from him for eternity. You have to be born again to have that eternal life promise. But there's going to be judgment that we're going to see in these verses here, 14 through 20 of chapter 14. And it's a heavy, solemn time. This is the warning that God has given to all of of mankind from the very beginning. Apart from him, you are doomed. And so we see here this suddenness, this this first part, the gain harvest, a suddenness that's going to happen in this judgment. 
We're also going to see the severity of the grape harvest at the very end of 17 through 20. This grape harvest, this severity of God's judgment. And again, if you're just joining us, this is a parenthesis. This is a pause. This is just an interlude of what will be described in much more detail in chapter 16 and beyond. This is not just the all you'll hear about the time of judgment. This is just a future look of what is going to be happening as John is writing and what he's seeing in the vision. Remember, all of chapter 14 is one big vision. We're seeing, we've already seen the first four facets of that vision. We're seeing the last two parts of that vision of, of uh, the fifth and the sixth here in these verses. But this God's, God's judgment is going to happen and it's described through this harvest here. In verse 14, we're going to read through verses 14 through 20 here. So follow along as I read. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, heavenly temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for, for, for 1,600 furlongs. Father, again, we thank you for your word, and as we study your word, Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to us of your truths. Speak to our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. As we take a look at the remaining of chapter 14, and we noticed here in verse 14, then I looked, John looked, the apostle John looked, and behold, a white cloud. It wasn't just a, white, a regular white cloud. It was a white cloud, and on that cloud sat one. And in your Bibles, it should be capital O for one, for deity, one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. So you know, we notice here in the fifth part of the vision that John has been given, this facet that we see here is regarding the harvest, the first part, the grain harvest. It's an observance or observed here on this cloud, this white cloud, 
the Son of Man who sits upon the white cloud and directs the reapers, the angels, that God is going to be calling to do this work that he's describing in the end times. His futuristic messianic glory and name, the Son of Man, is seen first seen in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which means the Son related to mankind. Christ is also the Son of God or the Son related to God as indicated in Psalm 2, verses 7. But on this cloud, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, having on his head a golden crown. And in his hand, a sickle, a sharp sickle. One that is used to take and to harvest the wheat. Or to harvest, we will see at the end of this chapter, the clusters of grapes, the vine. Some find it difficult to see this is Jesus that he's speaking to. And so some people have a view of this, not Jesus. I don't see how they cannot see this is Jesus. Why? Because one says the reason why they don't see it as Jesus is because the angel follows up and kind of tells Jesus what to do. And that is not what the angel is doing. He's just acknowledging why Jesus is on the cloud and ready to do what, the, what he's doing with the sickle. So don't have a hard time with that anymore. This is Jesus he's referring to here in the scripture. Because unlike anyone else in the scripture, no one else is referred to as the son of man. No, and also a, wearing a golden crown. <laughs> so again, these things, when you take a look in a simplicity, we can find very clearly this is Jesus on, on this white cloud coming to do the final judgment of God upon this fallen world, this rejecting world. We also see that the white cloud that John sees here is a reference noted in John, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We also see that same white cloud in Matthew chapter 16 and 25 and chapter 26. And also in Acts chapter 1, verse 9 and 11. So it's very common to see this cloud, this white cloud, in conjunction with God's presence here. Because clouds are significant in the scripture. As you study the scripture, you see this very significant in the scripture. Why? Because it represents the visible presence of God. We see that back in Exodus chapter 19 or chapter 34. When God was present with the nation of Israel coming out of, out of Egypt across into the promised land. We also see it very clear in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 10. But also you can go back in even Numbers, chapter 9, verse 17. These are just references for you to see the significance of why this white cloud is being brought to John in a clear vision of understanding of what is happening and who is about to do this work. The Jews say that the presence of God departed. And it is true. God's presence departed from them, uh, from the temple, from the city of Jerusalem, from the land of Israel because of their sin, we see in Ezekiel uh, 9, chapter 3. But just because they left because of their sin and the presence and, the, and, and, and being in, with his people at that time, doesn't mean God left. It just means that he is his presence. You can grieve, even us. We can grieve the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit hasn't left you because as a believer, he's inside you. He's sealed you for eternity. 
but you can grieve him so that you don't sense his and feel his presence. A church can lose his, his presence will not come, especially if you get two or three people together just to gather together and, and they're doing all kinds of crazy things from worldly things. Doesn't mean God's in your presence. It's two or more gathered in his name. You have his presence will be revealed to you. So just because, so we have to understand these things, but, but even been from that perspective, but God never was through with Israel. Many people in, in, in churches today will try to tell you Israel's gone and has no value whatsoever. I absolutely reject that because of the scripture. You have to remind people, just because in Ezekiel you'll see that he, lost, he left his presence, his Shekinah glory right there in the temple, didn't mean God is done with Israel. We see him coming and showing up. Why? Because the Messiah, Jesus, his son, the son of man, the son of God is coming. He came. And we see that the cloud appeared again when? Matthew 17, 5. The cloud appears in Israel when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. We also see it again when Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts 1.9. God's presence for you and I and for the nation of Israel still today. And we see that Jesus was wearing a crown, a golden crown. There's two different words that can be there. This word for crown in this particular verse is Stephanos. It means a crown of glory versus a crown of, of, of a kingship. We're talking more of victory because he's coming back. He's able to judge. He's not only the savior, but he is also the judge. He's, he's a, yes, a God of love, but he also is a God of justice. And he's going to correct things that rejected him. If you reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're rejecting and you're setting yourself up for this moment in time that we're talking about today. That'd be a very foolish decision to make. Choose Jesus. Be the wisest decision you will ever make. So this crown of victory, the one who once hung on Calvary's cross for the sin of the world, is the same blessed one who is coming now to rightly execute judgment on those who rejected him and his work on the cross. And another angel, this is the fifth angel that we see in chapter 14, come out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him, Jesus Christ, who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. God's timing is perfect. God's ways are perfect. Many times for you and I, when we see this wicked world and the things that are going on in this world and people who are suffering because of the evilness and the wickedness, it's like, Lord, please come back and judge these people. Judge these nations. Judge these leaders who are, who are killing massive people because of the faith in Jesus. Because we're not God. He's much more long-suffering than you and I much more patient than you and I are. We see in the scripture here, it's only going to happen when the harvest of the earth 
is ripe. And the word is completely ripe. Now it's interesting. The ancient Greek word for ripe has a negative sense to become dry and withered. If you've ever been around the grapes before, you're like, oh, they're, they're drying up. They're withered up here. And it's a negative for those who are growing grapes and, and winemakers. But the idea is a something here in these words of over, overripe. It's one of the first things that Christ will do is to bring judgment to the world with a sharp sickle. When? When the harvest is ripe. It's the the the. the the grapes are ready to burst forth. They're just so juicy, so, so much. They're not dry. They're not withered. No, they're fully to its fullness. And at that point, the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. God is giving Every single person, every opportunity to surrender their life to Jesus. And he will wait until the harvest is absolutely ripe. Meaning, that's it. Those who have rejected me have rejected me. It's fullest. There are no more people are going to give their life to me. The wickedness is it. It's done. It's time to harvest. It's time to separate. So this means that God will judge the earth only when it's overripe for judgment. He has stretched it to the max, waiting for people to give their life to Christ and wait and patiently wait and wait and wait, giving people opportunity. And when it's overripe, it's, it's done. Judgment will come. He doesn't rush into judgment, not like you and I. We will judge quickly on someone. You cut them off and you, you, brought, you bring judgment quickly on people who cut you off in the car. You'll judge people just because they just look at you wrong. But we're always reminded we have no idea what's going on behind in their lives and the turmoil and the pain and the suffering that some people are going through. And, and so we read it upon one way and it could be completely different. If you've heard that story, I think I've told it before. If you haven't, I'm going to tell it again. That's what pastors do. We just tell the same stories over and over. I always reminding, Kathleen's always reminding me is, is of a story of a of a man on a plane, and if you've ever flown, you know this, this scenario, and, and the kids are going crazy. I mean, they just can't, and, and everyone's turning. You know, some trying to not be too conspicuous, right? Or you know, obvious, but kids are going crazy, and the, the dad is just sitting there. It's like, where's the mother? If the mother was here, the, the kids would be in order. You know, the, all those little judgment moments. And dad's just staring like he's in a zone. Like dads can do. Dads can get in a zone and not hear anything. 
Kids are going crazy. Finally, someone said, are you going to put, you know, get these kids in order? And he just looks at the, at the crowd or in the, in the plane. I understand. I, I'm sorry. We just, just finished burying their mom. And they're just, they just don't know how to deal with, the, with it right now. Do you, and at the moment, see, you're casting judgment. But you don't fully understand what's going on fully and what's happening in their lives at that moment in time. Sometimes we say, Lord, why aren't you coming, coming back for, take us out of here? It's okay now. I'm saved. <laughs> why, why wait, Lord? Let's just take, take us all now. And I had to come to conclusion back in my early days. I said, Corey, you're being still selfish. You got saved. Now forget about everybody else. How much selfish can you get now? You're selfish when you were a heathen. Now you're being selfish while you got saved. Aren't you thankful that I didn't answer a prayer for someone else who got saved and said, okay, Lord, let's take us all out of here and let everyone else burn? You would be burning right now, Corey. See, God, our God that we serve is a long-suffering and patient God. But don't mistaken his long-suffering and patience and kindness and love that's, that, that is going to, there's not judgment as well at some point when the harvest is at its ripest and there'll be a separation. Now, as we take a look at these verses and we see this, it, remember that evil has its own harvest as well as the harvest for the good. There's a harvest of misery and woe and a harvest for the gathering and binding and burning of the tares as well as the gathering of the wheat into the gather of heaven. According to this passage, it would seem that there, could, there comes to a point in the tribulation time when salvation is no longer possible. Understand at this point we have a vision where the 144,000 evangelists, the Jewish virgin males who God used to uh, share the good news across the world in the time of tribulation, is, are gone and they're in heaven. The two evangelists who, who were preaching from out of Jerusalem, who died and came back, and God raised back their life and, res, and, 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 and descended them into heaven, they're gone. The angels have made their last proclamation that we studied already, and now it's going to be the last separation between those who become Christians in the time of tribulation and those who don't. And so, too, we must understand, as you and I go through tribulation and trouble in our life, and we will have trouble, there'll be persecution for your faith, but you will also have troubles just because of troubles. Sickness will come. Loss of job may come. There's going to be troubles and there's going to be struggles in this life when you were a non-believer, but also when you become a believer. It rains on the just and the unjust. 
But you must understand what we do as Christians with this trouble that we find ourselves in, that God is allowing into our lives to refine us at many times. But sometimes it's because of our flesh we bring these troubles upon ourselves. It wasn't God that did it, it was you that did it. Because of our foolishness, our tongue has not been tamed, and we say things we should never be saying to what we've said to our loved ones or to complete strangers. But we must understand when we go through tribulation and trouble in our life, you need to understand there comes a time when your own heart and my heart, if we're not careful as a believer, can become hardened if you're not careful. You can be a believer and you can allow your heart to be hardened. We must be careful. The Bible speaks of a root of bitterness that can take hold in the soul of a man's soul in Hebrews 12, 15, that can bring destruction to one's life. I have seen believers go through tribulation, troubles, struggles in their lives. And rather than allowing the Lord's work of grace to take place in their hearts, they choose instead To be bitter and unforgiving toward others. Because that person wasn't perfect. Or there were non-believers and they didn't understand. That's how a non-believer is going to act and behave from their flesh. I mean, and they're controlled by the world. I mean, but you can become bitter toward them. Unforgiving toward them. And what happens is that bitterness and unforgiveness actually destroys you if you allow it, especially if it takes root. That's why we, we don't let that happen in your life. Don't, let, don't be unforgiving in your life. Don't be critically spirited in your life. Don't be bitter. Don't play Satan's game because if you allow Satan to play the game in your life of bitterness and unforgiveness, it's going to destroy you and everyone around you. Because if you don't deal with it, that bitterness and unforgiving will take root in your life. And when it takes root, there will come to a point in your own tribulation, in your own life, when it will become a devastating part of who you are. You must cast that over to Jesus today. If you find yourself bitter and unforgiving, you must cast it. He paid for it all. Remember, he paid for all of that. But you can't just say that as Christians. You just can't just say it because it's a Christian thing to say. Because you know what the answer is. I mean, even the kids in the kids, children's ministry knows the answer. What are we going to eat today? Jesus. Who are we going to go see today? Jesus. I mean, if you get this custom in Christianity that you, oh, I'm doing great, brother. I'm blessed, brother. And you go on on, and inside you're absolutely spiraling out of control. But you know what to say because that's what the right thing to say. That's hypocrisy. You, you and I cannot have that in our lives. We must be transparent. 
Especially being honest with God. You can't sit there and say one thing, I'm, I'm not bitter and I'm unforgiving, when you know in your heart and in your mind you are. God sees all things. He knows all things. He's all present. He understands. You can fool the rest of us at some point, but eventually it's going to come out. Because what's in the heart will come out verbally and in your actions. It's only a matter of time. So he warns us, we can't allow this to happen. We can't allow this to happen. Then we first see the second part, the, the wine press of God here, the, 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 the transformation here of, of God's judgment upon here. In verse 17, then another angel, the sixth angel that we've seen here in chapter uh, 14, came out of the temple, the same heavenly temple, right, which is in, is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. He's going to be assisting here. And these reapers are going to be doing the harvesting here. It seems that these moments that we're seeing here with the angels with the sickle and following the lead of Jesus with the sickle and doing this judgment, God's judgment upon the fallen world. Piers, the angel is just acting a response to the prayers of the saints for all of us who are saying, please, when are we see in the heavenly, when are you going to bring judgment? When are you going to make things right, God? In God's perfect timing and perfect way. And that's why we see in verse 18, and then another angel came out from the altar Altar in the scripture, especially the brass altar, means judgment. And so we see here the altar has come and had, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So we see the image, the second coming of Jesus as a harvest is communicated here, even in we see in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and also 36 through 43, of the parable of the wheat and tares. There's going to be a time where people who come together and they say they're a Christian, they look like a Christian, they try to act like a Christian. Now, how are you going to do that in the end times? That is not, I don't think it's possible. It's going to be so clear during the tribulation time because you are going to have to make a decision about the mark of the beast. And if you choose to worship the Antichrist, then you're making a decision for Satan. You're making a decision that is going to cost you your life for eternity. To live in hell and to lake of fire, pain and torture and pain and suffering the rest of your life for eternity. And so when you take a look at these verses and you look at this is the end time, this is it, this is it, this is no long time. Those who gave their life probably were martyred, as we see in the scripture, they were killed for their faith, they didn't take the mark. But at the very end, we're going to, God is going to deal with Israel, he's going to deal with those who are, um, who are still, who did get saved during that period of time and are able to keep away from the mark and able to, to withstand God is going to separate the wheat from the 
the chaff. And that chaff is going to be bundled up. It's going to be harvested and be burned, as we see in the parable. In verse 19, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. It's a vivid picture of judgment. Go back and read Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6 today that speaks of this. But the last part of the vision that we see here in chapter 14, this last part of the vision is the, the grape harvest. And it is very different from the grain harvest in the fact that we're seeing this, this, this you know, there's three different, ver- three different views of what this chapter 14 and this last part of the grain versus of, of the grape harvest. And some people very distinctly see two separates, and some see it as just more of an intensity of the grain versus the actual harvest of the, of the grapes. You can have different views of this. I just find it when I look and I study and I think this through about through it, is God is finally putting things in its place and that people are not going to be able to to, to hide any longer or pretend anymore or think they're going to survive with and, 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 and not have to face God's judgment. So keep it real simple if you don't have the full illumination of what it is. And over time, as you grow and mature, you will have more illumination from the Lord bringing clarity for you. But let me go through a few things here to kind of point what I see what the Lord is showing me and to maybe show you. But as you take a look at these, 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 the words within especially verse 19, that is going to be the gathered of the vine. Well, if you study the scripture, what is the vine? That's a harvest of the vine, yes, yes. But the vine of the earth is more specifically that John is writing here. I believe it's really speaking very highly and specifically to the vine of the apostate Israel. Of Israel who is rejected of God. You understand today, most of Israel, those who are Jewish, do not believe as an Orthodox Jew does. They're very secular. They're very non, they're, they're so worldly in most of the Jewish, uh, of the nation of what we refer to as the nation of Israel, those who are, come from the descendants of the, of the Jewish nation. The, most of them in Israel today are very, very, very worldly. I mean, it's, it's free for all over there. We only see many times when we think of Jewishes is the Orthodox Jews, the very ultra-religious on that side of the things. They fall into more on the law, not grace. And then there's born-again Jews. I know many born-again Jews, Messianic Jews, who, yes, they're Jewish descent, but they're believers in the Messiah, the Yeshua, that Jesus spoke, or the scripture in the Old Testament spoke of. So I have many brothers who are like that. But in this end times, God is speaking of the vine, is speaking really of Israel and the vine. But we also see, you and I are as well, right? Because we are familiar with the picture of Israel in the Old Testament, and Isaiah uses it clearly. But also Hosea, Hosea 10.1, where it says, Israel empties his vine, he brings forth fruit for himself. And it's the same picture that we see in Psalm 80. And so when our Lord was here, on this earth at the time, he said in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. 
I'm the one you're supposed to be abiding in here. And he was the only one in Israel bearing good fruit, and all who accept his message became, you and I, branches of that vine. We were grafted in to that vine. Jesus Christ was pressed to the cross for our sin in John 19, 17. So in the final months of the tribulation, the nation of the earth will be thrown into a great winepress of the wrath of God. Those who have rejected Jesus will be gathered up and thrown into this winepress of the wrath of God. And it's the last greatest plagues that we will see, especially as we see the things rolled out of the bowls of judgment in the last part of the, of the tribulation. And these last great plagues by God will bring on more of God wrath than we've ever seen. We will see that next Time we study the word here in Revelation in chapter 15. But the doctrine of divine wrath is reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. This is not a, something new. The subject of the, the wrath of the Lord may not be a popular subject to preach on a Sunday. That's why most churches don't preach hell or judgment and things in churches today. Because it's not a popular, it's not a feel-good kind of moment, kind of message. But do you want the truth? Or do you want to be snowed? That's a bad word. <laughs> or do you want to be deceived? By fake religion. I don't know about you, I, I, there's no time to be fake. Not, there's not time to be washy and, 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 and vague and, and partial truth just to make you feel good so you'll keep coming back. I've always, from the very beginning of when I got saved and I started preaching the gospel, I always had the mindset of this. If God has brought someone in front of me and I have the opportunity to teach the word, that might be the last time they had the opportunity to hear the word. I did not want to lose an opportunity to tell someone the truth because their life may depend upon it of eternity. God, God saves people. But if God's given me a calling to share the gospel, he's given all of us to do the work of an evangelist to share the good news. I don't want to lose the opportunity because of the fact you are to love that person in front of you like God loves them. God was willing to die for them, how could I not be willing to share the good news that was given, a free gift of salvation to me? How could I not tell people about the... I come from the medical background. It was easy for me to, to, to understand the, how important it is to tell people the truth of, of what is happening with their lives. 
as hard as it was going to tell when I walked into that ICU room to tell someone some really bad news, I had to tell the truth in a loving way, yes. But I always said, I just got cured. <laughs> I, got, I have the answer to get cured, and I know you're standing in front of me, and you're dying of that, of that ravaging sin. And I have the answer, and I don't give it to you and tell you how it saved me and healed me. Corey, you're still being selfish, even in the state of being saved. You're still being selfish if you don't share when God gives you opportunity of letting you know of the good news. Only found in the person, Jesus Christ. But religion ain't going to save you. Tradition's not going to save you. Only having a personal relationship with Jesus is going to save you. And God's wrath is coming. Here in verse 19, we see it's too late. It's too late to repent. It's too late for the enemy of God to be dealt with and to be able to deal with it and have an opportunity. It's, it, they've already had their opportunity. It's, it's too late. The Old Testament uses 11 words to describe a wrathful ang uh, anger. The New Testament in the Greek, thumos, is a Greek word used to have a burning anger. And it is used ten times in the book of Revelation. Only eight times in the rest of the New Testament. That's, that's where we see most of God's wrath here is really boiled down in the book of Revelation to show at the end times, at the very end, after giving you all the opportunity of this world to give their life to Christ. There is judgment coming. The Apostle Paul makes it the sobering observation that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 5, 6. Don't be a, don't be dis, uh, be a son of disobedience. Because those who reject Christ are waiting for the final judgment. You just don't, you're just ignoring the fact that that's your outcome. And those who have rejected Christ, the outcome is, is clear. It's going to be casting into outer darkness and eternal separation from God. But those of us who have placed their faith in Christ are covered by his blood and will not experience this wrath. We have eternal hope. Jesus put it this way in John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. That's as clear of a message of the decision if you're for Christ or you're against Christ. John 3.36. We'll finalize here in, in verse 20, and very important verse here, and the wine press, again, God's judgment, his wrath, 
And the winepress was trampled outside the city. The city is referring to always very consistently the city of Jerusalem. And blood came out of the winepress. Notice that the blood came out of the winepress, out of God's judgment, up, up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, many people kind of reference this and grasp this in this time. This is speaking of the time of the Battle of Armageddon. I believe that. Some others may not believe that, but I believe it is the, the Battle of Armageddon. And it's a picture of tremendous carnage, tremendous shed of blood here, because we see that this is going to be taking place outside of the city of Jerusalem, just outside. And there'll be so much death and so much blood shed in this battle of Armageddon when those nations come against the return of Jesus Christ and his second coming. And we'll talk about more of this in Revelation chapter 16 and chapter 19. But many people hold the view that this is describing so much blood that it literally piles up and it flows at about five feet up because that's the bottom of uh, the average of the, uh, from the ground to the, to the horse's head to the furlongs, to up to here, to five feet up or so, and it's going to be so much blood. But they understand that the time or place or location of how this taking place is going to cover about 184 mile uh, length from the north to the south of Israel. So I stand in the position that we're not talking five feet of blood going 180 miles. I think it's very simple as I keep it very simple in contrast and in, in, in context of the wine press when the, the, the grapes are at its fullest, its ripest, its juiciest and you picture the people coming and stamping on the grapes because that's what they did back in the day. They would walk and they still do it in Italy today, don't they? And they still walk on the, on the, uh, on the grapes to make their wines and there's just Grape juice going everywhere. Splattering five feet up into the air because of the trampling of God's judgment. The armies are going to come and they're going to go from the north to the south. We see it in the scriptures very clearly in Joel chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 and Zechariah 14 4. And it starts from the the. the from the hill of Megiddo, it's a northern part, right? That's what it means, the battle of Armageddon. And it flows, and we see in the Old Testament, and it's going to go down through the valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Kindred Valley, all the way to the south. And it's going to be blood covering all the land of Israel. That's how bad it's going to be. Why is that important? Because in those times, in that how they fought, it was very regional. It was very specific within that part of Israel or part of the world. And it was very isolated because even though they had 30, 60, 100,000 men coming to battle, it didn't cover 180 miles. But in modern, modern um, warfare today, it can cover more than 180 miles. 
But Israel, where the last battle, that battle of Armageddon is going to take place, is going to go from the north to the southern part, down through that Kindred Valley, down through the, the valley of, if you looked at the map of, of Israel, that's where all these nations are going to come down through, and Jesus is literally going to wipe them out. So the blood will cover this surrounding area, and it will just, blood will be just, it will be, it's just basically speaking of the severity of the judgment and the blood splattering all the way up. It was, a, again, an image, a picture of what John could try to understand, to give and write and put in words at that time. And that is going to happen. This 1,600 furlongs is very specific to the area of the 184 miles, give or take a few miles. Some say 180, some say 200, doesn't matter. From the north to the south, it's this, this battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And when, remember, when Jesus returns, he puts his feet on the where? The Mount of Olives. Right there by that valley that's going to split from north to south. It's going to, all kinds of things are going to, we're going to talk about that as we continue. But understand, this is a picture that we'll talk about more in detail, but this is the picture of what's going to happen in this great war when Jesus is second coming and put his feet onto this earth. It's a graphic, powerful description of God's judgment on this wicked world. Revelation 14 is a perfect answer to Revelation 13 that we studied. So go back and read that again and listen to that again. Why? Because in chapter 13, we think the Antichrist and the false prophet is controlling everything. The the, the, the new Babylon is going to somehow just take over the world and, and there's nothing going to stop Satan and, and the use of the Antichrist and the false prophet in those days. Just keep reading. We get to chapter 14. We see, no, that's not going to continue. All that's coming down. The one world government is coming down. And only God's kingdom is going to rule. Now I'll close with this, and we'll go into communion. We must remember that the prediction that Christ will judge the earth comes after three angelic messengers. Three distinct messages and, and warnings are given to the people. That's how grace is so, it, God's grace and love for the whole world. He died for the whole world. That he's preaching of the everlasting gospel, raising up 144,000, two evangelists, and all the other believers who get saved during the tribulation. They're spreading the gospel. He's giving warnings to people. Give your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. You don't have a guarantee for tomorrow. It's coming to the end. The tribulation seven years. We know we're in the seven years. For those who are in the tribulation time, I don't believe we are right now, but in this seven-year tribulation, they know the timing. You and I say, oh, i got time. Once I achieve these other things in my life and do this and do that and have a good time and stuff, then I'll think about it. You, you've been fooled because you have no guarantee for life tomorrow. 
And so when you take a look at this and when you take a look at the scriptures and we understand the understanding, he got his everlasting preaching, the everlasting gospel across the world. And even at the end times, he's even using an angel to go across and make sure everyone knows the good news. But people still rejected it. Let me ask you a question. If you're a non-believer right now, you haven't given your life to Jesus. You've been hanging around, you've been listening to this, but you haven't really surrendered life. You know you're not born again. If an angel flew over right now and you heard the good news preached by an angel, do you know what some people would think right now if you're a non-believer? Oh, then I would believe. Then I, would give, I would give my life to Christ then. No, you won't. We see it clearly people are going to reject you. You don't know what, how you're going to respond. God has revealed himself to you multiple times in your life, depending on how old you are. <laughs> if you're, if you're, you know, if you, if you're, you're 13 or older, I assure you, God has, has been knocking at the door of your heart and you've been rejecting it. Don't do it today. Don't reject him today. And we see the second warning, this, the warning of the Babylon and your religious influence. All this world government and all these things that they promise, and you put your trust in the, the government? <laughs> Please. But in, in all these promises, that God said this is all going to come down, and it's going to come down. And when it did come down, it didn't change their heart to give their life to Christ. And the third one was the assurance of the worshipers of the Antichrist will be destroyed. All those who took the mark, they're going to all be destroyed. But that didn't change the hearts of people. Many will still reject Christ, even after receiving warning after warning after warning. But it's a, a strong, very strong confirmation, though, of the depravity of the human heart in these last days. This will be the last separation for those during this tribulation time. But let me lift this up for you now. Let's take the weight off of you a little bit. We are now going to take communion. Do you know why we take communion? Not because we have to. Not because it's the religious thing to do. We take communion because we get to. Because we're a child of God for those who are born again. This is a time for us to celebrate that we're not going through the judgment. We're not going through the judgment. We're just waiting for the rapture. Whatever God allows in our lives between now and that time of the rapture, it is, it, it is, it is what it is. He's in control of our lives. We know what's, he knows what's best. Father... As much as the world says fathers do not know what's best, I'm telling you, our Heavenly Father knows what's best. Do you trust Him? Do you? Oh, I, I truly hope so. So as we come to the, to the table here, let me read you really quick some scripture real quick. Very important for you to know out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse, uh, I'll, I'll read here in verse 27. 
Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is a time, my brothers and sisters, to celebrate, yes. But secondly, to search your heart and say, Lord, is there any wicked way in it? Is there anything I need to confess to you right now, Lord? That is there something that's creeped back in? And we were talking earlier, you got beautiful white snow. It's reminded as it were as white as snow. We've been forgiven, but sometimes the dirt gets on the snow. It's got to be cleaned up. We come to the table to confess so that we can make it be right with God. Don't let anything take root in our lives that is not a, that's not pleasing to God. Confess it, repent of it, get rid of it, put it at his feet. He's already paid the penalty for that. Let it go. He freed you from it. You do not need to go back to it. Trust in the Holy Spirit who lives within you as a child of God. And he will equip you and empower you to live a life that's pleasing to God. But for those who are non-believers and are listening to me right now, do not take communion if you are not born again. You're heaping more judgment upon yourself. But, and this is where the good but is. That was a bad but. Now this is the good but. Surrender your life this morning to him. Confess that you're a sinner and you need to be saved by your Savior, Jesus Christ. Because you believe that he is the savior of the world and he died for that sin of yours on the cross that day at Calvary. And anyone who believes in him shall receive eternal life. Amen.